I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a study of the book of Acts, and we're going to continue that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to spend some time praying together as we begin, as we do every week. And we're going to thank God for the privilege of being able to hear His Word, and we're going to ask God to use the preaching of His Word in this church and in our life. And I would ask you to pray with me. Father, we come to You today, Lord, and we want to express gratitude toward You, God. And we want to give thanks, Lord, and honor to You for revealing Yourself to us, Lord. God, we want to see it as grace from heaven. Just the mere fact that we have this book in front of us, Lord. Your words from heaven. And we want to remember, Lord, that we don't deserve Your revelation. No man, no woman has a claim on You, Lord. But You have freely revealed Yourself to us through Your Word. And we want to worship You for being a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God who reveals Himself. Lord, You've done it many times and in many ways. You've made Yourself known. You're not a God who hides Himself. You're a God who manifests Himself. And most of all, You have made Yourself known in Christ, the Word of God. And so, Lord, we worship You. God, we remember that this day, apart from You revealing Yourself, Lord, we would still be in darkness. And yet, You have caused the great light to shine upon us, Lord. God, we thank You that we can know You truly and rightly through Your Word. And that's what we ask for today, Lord, that You would reveal Yourself to us through Your Word, week by week, Lord, that You would send forth your word from your scriptures, Lord, and that you would reveal yourself, God, that we would know you, that we would press on in knowing you as a local church. And so we ask for that today, Lord. Fill this time up with instruction, Lord, with revelation, with making yourself known to us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, before we make our way this morning to Acts 17, I want to mention a foundational way of looking at the world. And I want us to think really quickly, um, right now in this moment, every human being is, it has a lens through which they view this world. That's called a worldview. Okay? Right now, every human being has a worldview, a way that they think. And as we were to, if we were to survey all the different ways that human beings think and all the different things they believe, we would find that every worldview has a foundation. Every worldview has an authority that it relates to, a foundation that it's built upon. And as we look out and we see all those different worldviews and all the different kinds of beliefs, if we were to expose the foundation of human worldviews, we would find that at the bottom of the bottom, there's only one of two options. There's only one of two options 
for authority as we look out in all of creation. And, he, and here's the reality. Every human being is either going to live by divine revelation on the one hand, or by human speculation on the other hand. At the end of the day, after you strip it down to its bare essentials, you will either live by the Word of man, or you will live by the Word of God. Authority. Every human being has an authority. Okay? And as Christians, our claim to authority is that our God has revealed Himself through His Word. We have the inscripturated Word of God. Authoritative words from heaven. What we're going to see in Acts 17 today is we're going to see two examples of two separate groups of people who lived their life submitted to the authority of God as He's revealed in Holy Scripture. As God is revealed through His Word. And we're going to be exhorted in Acts 17 today that we would live the same way. That the only rational thing for us, the only wise thing for us, the fitting response for us, the only blessed path for us is if we would submit ourselves not to the authority of man, but to the authority of God as He's revealed Himself to us through His Word. The book of Acts, we've mentioned this many times as we come through this book. This is about how Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. And today we're going to get a specific glimpse that Jesus reigns over His church through Scripture. This is how the King reigns over His subjects is through His Word, through Scripture. So I invite you to turn with me to Acts 17 and we're going to read our passage together. Beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word to Grace Community Church today. Acts chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money 
as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So this is God's Word to us this morning as a local church. And we want to press in, and we want to expose what this passage says, and we want to press in even further of how God would have us apply these words to our life. So we're going to begin this morning in a city called Thessalonica. And we're told that this mission team, on the backside of this mission in Philippi, that this mission team lands in another city of Macedonia called Thessalonica. And then what Luke does, the writer of Acts, is he focuses in on this three-week period of Jewish evangelism in this one city. One city, Thessalonica. And we're told that Paul goes about his custom. Okay? That he does here what he was accustomed to do in many other places. And we're told he enters into the Jewish synagogue and he begins to preach Christ. And in the words of Romans 1, this is, this is the pattern of his ministry. That whenever possible, the Apostle Paul preaches the Gospel first to the Jews and then also to the Greeks. And it's a fitting thing that the Jewish people would be offered the Gospel. The people of God. God's chosen people. And the good news of Jesus being the fulfillment of all that God has promised to Israel. And so Paul engages in his custom in Thessalonica. He goes into the synagogue to preach the Gospel. And then we want to jump right in in verse 2 to his method. We want to take note of his method and the manner that he goes about making the Gospel of Jesus known. And so notice this phrase in verse 2. Very simply, we are told that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul enters into the Jewish synagogue and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now I want you to think about, that's an amazing thing if you view it from a certain angle. This man, the Apostle Paul, has seen Jesus Christ. He has seen Jesus Christ. He has a privileged, authoritative position in the church of Jesus. He's the Apostle to the Gentiles. 
as far as intellect and capacities and gifting goes, we could probably put all of our giftings and all of our intellect together in the room this morning, and we couldn't hold a candle to how gifted this man was. Okay? And, and we're told these interesting words, that even this man enters into the synagogue, and he appeals, he makes his appeal in an authority that resides outside of himself. Outside of himself. And that's something very different that we see anointed ones in our day enter in and talk to a crowd of people and their authority arise in themselves, in their anointing, those anointed ones. And, and what we want to see this morning is that Paul grounds his gospel in an authority outside of himself. He grounds it in the authority of the Word of God. Paul knew about that framework that we started with today. Okay? That we get the choice at the end of the day to live one of two ways. We can live by the authority of God or we can live through divine revelation or we can live by the authority of man through human speculation. And when given that choice, Paul went with the Word of God, the Scriptures. The inscripturated revelation of God. The Word of God. Turn with, with me really quickly to Isaiah chapter 8. And I want to read a quick verse that the Apostle Paul would have been aware of. Okay, He would have been aware that God's Word teaches this in many different places. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, says this, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn or no light. So I want you to notice that. That God's Word says to the teaching and to the testimony. This is a reference to the book. okay? The Word of God. The inscripturated Word of God. That's the standard. That's the measuring stick. And then God gives that warning. If someone will not speak according to these, to the teaching and to the testimony, God's Word says that person has no light. They have no dawn. In a world of darkness, they're the blind leading the blind. They have no, light, no penetrating clarity. They have no words of light from God to the teaching, and to the testimony. And so this is what, God, what the Apostle Paul does in this Jewish synagogue. Is he, he begins his appeal through Scripture, through the Word of God. What can we learn from this? Okay? That we would do the same thing. Okay? That if we had the opportunity to speak about God, that same framework stands before us. Am I going to speak about God on the authority of man, come up with the best thing I can think of, or am I going to speak about God on the authority of Scripture with the words that God has revealed about Himself? Okay? And, and we, as disciples of Jesus, we want the Lord Jesus to be magnified, and one of the ways that happens is when we ground our appeal in an authority outside of ourselves. Now, one of the ways 
that we can be subtly off on this particular issue is confusing the gospel with certain things in our life. And one of the things that sticks out to me most clearly is sometimes we can be wrongly taught and we can have been wrongly heard that evangelism is telling your testimony. It's go tell people what Jesus has done in your life. Okay? And I want to pause right there and I want to say, Grace Community Church, we think that's a good thing. You should boast in the work of the Lord Jesus and what He's done in your life. But we also want to carefully note that our testimony is not the gospel. Our testimony is not the word that God has revealed about His Son. And so in that Romans 1.16 framework, our testimony is something that God has done in our life, but our testimony is not the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Human beings don't get, don't get saved believing our testimony. They must receive the Gospel. And so as helpful as testimonies are, they're not the foundation. They're not the authority. And so we follow in these same footsteps that we speak about Jesus from Scripture. From Scripture. We deliver God's Word. And so this is what He's doing. He's reasoning with them from Scripture. And then I want us to notice that his focus and everything he's talking about in this synagogue, his focus is on the Jewish Messiah. And if you've never heard that phrase before, what, what that phrase communicates is this promised one that all the Old Testament, uh, scattered throughout all the Old Testament, were promises about this one whom God was going to give, who was going to deliver Israel, deliver God's people. And in Greek, that Messiah was called the Christ. Okay? And so this is really important, especially in our culture that can, um, you know, sometimes it, it's easy to know some Bible stories and they're disconnected from each other. And what we want to make sure that people know is the story of Scripture. The, people have called that the meta-narrative. The story above all stories. That all those individual stories in Scripture, they're weaved together and God is revealing something about His Son. About Jesus. About the Christ. And so if we read the Old Testament on its own terms we'll find that, that more than anything else, the Old Testament revolves around these promises that God has made about the Christ. About the Christ. So we're going to pause right there. and Let's just mention a few of these. That if you made it a point, if you've never read the Old Testament before, and you made it a point to do that, say in the next six months of your life, I'm going to read the Old Testament, and I'm going to learn what that thing is about. Okay? I'm tired of not understanding the Old Testament. I want to understand it. Well, here's what you're going to find. The deeper and deeper that you go, you're going to find that you keep bumping into this theme of these glorious, prom glorious promises made about this singular figure who is called the Christ. The Christ. And so, we, we find this as early as Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, on the backside of sin... Sin enters the world. Death enters the world through sin. And before Adam and Eve even leave the Garden of Eden, God begins to reveal His words of promise and His words of grace. And He promises this one singular figure. 
this offspring of the woman is going to arise and God promises that He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now that's wonderful and glorious good news. If you're Adam and Eve and you have just been deceived into sin and therefore into death, that my God is going to send one to destroy my enemy. Genesis 3. So let's, let's just say you keep reading in the book of Genesis. You'll come across next place, Genesis chapter 12. And you'll find that God singles out this one man named Abraham. And God gives Abraham this glorious promise. And He tells this man that in your offspring, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promises in a world of sin, in a world of death, that there's going to come one through the line of Abraham that's going to bring not a curse for all the nations, blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is a glorious one, the promised one. And let's just keep reading. In the, in the book of Genesis, you come towards the end and you get to Genesis 49. And Abraham, by this time, has had a son named Isaac. And Isaac has had a son named Jacob. And this family has started to become its own nation. And they're busted up in 12 tribes. And at the end of his life, each of these sons begins to receive a blessing. And when one son named Judah receives a blessing from his father, we have another gracious, glorious prophecy about this one to come. That through the line, not only of Abraham, but through the line of Judah, this ruler is coming. Okay, A king is coming. And then we're told in Genesis 49 that the obedience of all the people shall be unto him. That he's going to come He's going to bless and all the nations are going to obey Him. Global King. He's on His way. Keep your eyes on that line of Judah. If you keep reading the Old Testament, you're bumping into one of these prophecies about the Christ after another. And you make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you find these prophecies get even more specific that God singles out a man named David. A chosen king named David, and God reveals this glorious promise to David, that David, one of your offspring, is going to arise, and God says he's going to rule, wait for it, forever. That this one that's coming is going to sit on the throne, and God says there will never be a time where he will not rule, he will be king forever. And so I want your mind to start revolving around how glorious is this that one is coming, Satan's going to be crushed. One is coming, the nations are going to be blessed. One is coming, and all the peoples are going to obey Him. One is coming, and He will be king even forever. This is the Christ. And the point of the whole Old Testament is to reveal Him. Promises made that God is going to send the Christ. In the Christ. And so central is this one figure to Israel that all the promises that God has made to Israel are bound up in God sending this one deliverer, this one promised one. So I want you to imagine that you're a Jew 
sitting in that synagogue that day and all the hopes, all the promises that God has made to you as His chosen people singularly fall on this one Redeemer. And then this man comes and begins to announce this Christ to you. The fulfillment of all that God has ever promised. And this is what Paul begins to do in the synagogue. As he begins to share not just isolated stories, but the story of Scripture. More than anything else, this is what God is doing. He's revealing His Son. He's revealing His Son. Paul bumps into a problem in first century Judaism that they were blind, they expected, they longed for the Messiah, but they had some wrong expectations of what would happen when the Messiah arrived. And so these Jews, they wanted the Messiah to come, but what, what they really were expecting and where their hope was that this Messiah would come and He would deliver them from the Romans. Because at this time, we have the chosen people of God and they're being subjugated by pagan Rome. <clears throat> and so they're longing for the one who they think is going to come and break the backs of all of their enemies and bring political deliverance to the people of Israel. And what Paul begins to reveal is that this Messiah has come to do something way more glorious then bring about political liberation from Rome. And he begins to announce in this synagogue that this Messiah has come to do something way more glorious. He's came to save you from your sins. And the way he begins to explain this in verse 3 is he begins explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So he's opening those Scriptures in the synagogue, and then he begins to open them to very specific places that it was necessary. The Word of God says that the Christ had to die. The Word of God says that the Christ had to rise. And so he's zoning in on, it, on exactly what they do not get, that Jesus has come to do something that you're not aware of. The Messiah has come to die and rise, and he used the Old Testament to preach that. Think about that. Maybe that. Maybe you find yourself this morning with something along the lines of, wow, I thought that stuff wasn't revealed to the New Testament. Paul's saying that it was necessary from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messiah, the Christ, would die and would rise. And this is something that, that has always been God's plan, that He would save His people from their sins. Save His people from their sins. Now, we're not told in this passage exactly what Old Testament passages Paul turns to and grounds this appeal in. We don't know exactly which passages he goes to in Acts 17. There are many. There are many that reveal the, that Christ had to die. That Christ would rise. And we're going to mention a few of them uh, in just a minute. And I want to say something uh, to somebody really specific. If you find yourself at Grace Community Church today, and we laid out that framework from the very beginning, if you find yourself 
as a person who rejects the authority of Scripture. Okay? You hear those claims that Christians make that God has revealed Himself to us authoritatively through His Word, and you say, I, I don't believe it. I want to encourage you, and I actually want to challenge you to think through how you're reconciling these two historical realities. Okay? Reality number one. You wrestle with this. Reality number one. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish rabbi who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Fact. Historical fact. Established historical reality. You have a person, the person of Jesus. And then the second reality that I want you to think about this morning is this. We have Old Testament manuscripts available to us today that predate the birth of Jesus by centuries. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus is an established historical figure. Today, right now, we have Old Testament manuscripts available to us that are centuries prior to Jesus being born. And then wait for it. And these manuscripts tell us very specific things about the Christ. So the question that I want you to consider this morning is how are you reconciling that? How are you reconciling those two realities? Jesus is a real historical person and we have these things revealed about Him hundreds of years before He's even born. How are you thinking through that? Another way to ask that same question is what do you do with a book that prophesies events of history and then they happen? What are you doing with this book? These prophecies that we're about to cover regarding the person of Christ and the work of Christ, this is one of many ways that Scripture is self-attesting. Okay, And that's one of the, one of the uh, fallacies that we can fall into. Okay? That we try to ground the authority of the Bible in something else other than the Bible. And I want us to see how silly that is. Okay? That we're talking about God's authority. No higher authority. And so nowhere in all of creation do we appeal to lower authorities to establish higher authorities. We don't do that. Okay? Supreme Court justice doesn't appeal to the mall cop to establish his authority, right? That's not how it works. He appeals to the Constitution, to the President of the United States. That's how it works. Appeal to a higher authority to establish authority. And the question becomes, well, how do we establish the authority of the highest authority? There's nothing higher to appeal to. And this is the Word of God. This is why Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher from England, in the last century, he compared God's Word to a lion. And he reminded his students that you don't defend a lion. Don't get caught up in merely defending the authority of Scripture. He says, let that lion out. It can defend itself. There is no higher authority to appeal to than the Word of God. And so what do we do with this book that prophesies history and then it happens? 
give just a few of these examples. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 prophesies the exact town that the Christ is to be born in, Bethlehem, and then catch this, and then it happens. And then it happens. And let me tell you about an argument that none of Jesus' enemies made in the first century. We think we're really clever that we hear all these prophecies made, prophecies kept. Promises made, promises kept. And we, we have this you know, enlightened disposition of, of, no, they weren't. Do you know that no one ever says that? Jesus has enemies that hate him so much that they killed him. And none of them said, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't born in Bethlehem. Established fact. Okay? Word of God says he's coming. He's coming from Bethlehem. And then it happens. Old Testament prophesies exactly what's going to happen upon the coming of Christ. Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53 tells us that this Messiah, when He comes and when He arises, He's going to be rejected. Isaiah tells us He's going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to be acquainted with grief. He's going to be a rejected servant of the Lord. And you think about that's an amazing thing for the one who's coming to crush Satan, for the one who's coming to inherit the throne forever. Isaiah said, when He gets here, He's going to be rejected. Rejected. And Isaiah says, even more than rejected, he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to be crushed. He's going to pour out his soul in death. The Messiah is going to die. Isaiah 53 prophesies it. And then it happens. The Jews of Jesus' day were completely in the dark to this. But God had revealed this in the book of Isaiah. The Messiah will suffer and the Messiah will die. Psalm 22 tells us exactly how the Messiah will die. Exactly how the Messiah will die. Jesus alludes to this psalm on His cross with His dying breath. He quotes the words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And He draws our attention to Psalm 22. Well, guess what? One of the things in Psalm 22 reveals to us, it tells us that His hands and His feet were pierced. Not only does the Word of God tell us that the Messiah will die, it tells us that He will die by having His hands and feet pierced. He will be pierced in His hands and in His feet. We have copies of these things that predate Jesus. And listen, those words were written before Roman crucifixion was even invented. And the question is, what do you do with a book like that? What do you do with a book with vivid detail tells you what's going to happen and then it happens? Jesus of Nazareth is crucified under Pontius Pilate on a Roman cross. And not only that, the Word of God tells us that His death would not be the end, that God would vindicate Him. Psalm 16 tells us that God would not allow the Holy One to see corruption. That God wouldn't abandon the Holy One in Sheol. And even more than that, we're told in the book of Hosea chapter 6 that on the third day, God will raise up and then it happens. God made a promise and then God kept the promise. And then that's the question for us. Okay? What do we do 
with a book like this. And this is what Paul is doing in that synagogue. That he's announcing the prophetic Word and that he's coming beside that prophetic Word with the historical fulfillment. And he's saying this over and over again in verse 4. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. One of the things I want to make sure that we're all aware of is when we talk about prophecy and when we talk about um, uh, the promises that God made in Scripture and we talk about the fulfillment to those prophecies, I want to make sure that everyone understands that we're talking about a real historical fulfillment. Okay? This is not uh, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, fairy tale fulfillment. We're talking about real historical fulfillment. And if that's what we're talking about, that changes everything. Okay? If Christians believe in a fairy tale, Lord of the Rings way, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, that's one thing. But if the Christian claim is that a real historical man that was born in Nazareth has been raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of, fa- of the Father, and right now has received all authority in heaven and on earth, and He reigns on the throne of the universe right now, we're in a whole nother realm. That historical claim puts us in a whole nother realm. And then all of a sudden it becomes really clear that Christianity is not one religion in a pool of many religions. It's a unique, exclusive, historical claim. If there's a God-man that's reigning and seated at the right hand of God, then the implications are clear. Everyone better pay attention to Him. Everyone better respond to Him. And this is what Paul is claiming in this synagogue. That the, the Christ of Scripture is the Jesus of history. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now I want you to imagine if you're a Jew, okay, and your background is to feed upon the Old Testament and all these promises that God had made. And I want you to think about how beautiful that moment would have been in that synagogue where all of a sudden light from heaven began to break upon your mind and upon your heart and it began, it began to set in, oh my, what God has promised for millennia, thousands of years, has been fulfilled in my day. Promises made, promises kept. That not only has the Messiah come to reign, He came to die and rise. Think about how glorious that is. That good news that He could have come and He could have broken our backs as His enemies. You understand that, right? That if the Messiah came and He didn't die and rise, He's still King, but we have no Gospel. No way to be saved from our sins. And so this good news is being announced that not only did He come to reign, He came to die and to rise, not to crush us, but to save us from our sins. This would become the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and this would have been the most beautiful message that ever landed upon human ears, the fulfillment of all that God 
had promised. He had sent His Son. Verse 4 tells us that as they heard this announcement, that some were persuaded. They received it. That the Holy Spirit was at work in the synagogue that day. And He was driving these promises into human hearts, into human minds. And they received it. They received these arguments, this reasoning that Paul laid out. And when it says they received it, they received it like any other Christian has ever received it, by faith. This is how you receive this glorious Gospel. This is the only way that you receive this glorious Gospel. You can never earn it. You can never perform in such a way to receive it. The only, the only way to receive the Gospel is like a helpless child. A helpless child before God. By faith alone, apart from works. Receiving the fullness of the work of this Messiah. By faith alone, apart from works. These Jews received that message. Received that Gospel. And then we bump into verse 5. And we are reminded very quickly that not everyone responded favorably to the Gospel. In verse 5 we meet uh, a group, um, some were not persuaded, a group that grew jealous at the conversions that that Gospel had just produced in the synagogue. Okay, Jealous. So in that category that we were talking about at the beginning, the apostles and those who respond are those who are living by divine revelation. And these are examples of human beings that are living by human speculation. They are refusing to bow the knee to the Word of God. And the Bible tells us that they persecute this mission team. They begin to antagonize and, again, and begin to uh, persecute. We're told that they form a mob and we're told that this group attacked the house of Jason. And Jason is the one that's presented to us in this story as housing these missionaries. And the mob just stares up, oh, you want to you house those men? We're about to come down on, on the house of Jason. And this mob and these persecutors, they turn to the civil authorities and they make some very serious charges about this mission team. Now, one of the things that I learn every, every so often, it sticks out to me really clear, is that expositional preaching not only is good for the congregation, it's also good for the preacher. Okay? Um, if you, if you want to know how to kill a thousand preconceived sermon outlines, just submit yourself to expositional preaching and that you say what you believe God says in the text. And that happened to me this week. That happened to me. I'm reading this passage and I read this phrase, turn the world upside down. I got all kind of things in my mind. Man, that would be good. That would be a good way to, to, to encourage us. Um, and then as I dug into to what's happening in this text, I feel like the Lord show, showed me something exactly opposite of what I would have said. And so not only does a careful study and expositional preaching help you, it helps me. It helps Ryan. Okay? This is one of, one of the ways that Jesus rules over us, expresses His authority in His Word. So I want to talk to you about this phrase, turn the world upside down. Previously, I, th I read this phrase as a compliment. Okay? That the Gospel's having its effect in the world. Lost people hate it. 
but the church loves it. And the world's getting turned upside down, lost people hate it, and the church loves it. And again, there's definitely some truth in those concepts that the effect of the gospel is hated by the world, loved by the church. But this is actually not a compliment being paid to the mission team. Okay? As Paul heard about those charges being presented against him, you are turning the world upside down. He would not have responded, you better believe it. Okay? He would have he responded very differently. This phrase means to stir up, to agitate. That's what it means. And what this group is, uh, what they're charging the Apostle Paul with is they're saying that he's a terrorist. A political antagonist. They are charging him to be a revolutionary. A revolution leader. That phrase is a lie. They're lying about the Apostle Paul. Okay? They're saying he's turning the world upside down. And they're, presenting, they're misrepresenting him to the civil authorities. In fact, this Greek word is used one other time in the New Testament, later in the book of Acts. And again, the next time it's used in Acts 21, verse 38, Paul is again confused with a terrorist. Okay? A man confuses the Apostle Paul with an Egyptian terrorist who leads a revolt against Rome, 4,000 people out in the wilderness named the Assassins. It's the only other time it's used in Scripture. And so these men, when they appeal to the civil authorities and they say, he's turning the world upside down, they're saying, he is a terrorist. He is a revolutionary. And what they're doing is they're taking his gospel about the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And they're repackaging that They're misrepresenting that Gospel to the civil authorities as a threat upon the throne of Caesar. It's a misrepresentation. It's a lie. They're telling lies about the Apostle Paul. You're a revolutionary. You're a terrorist. Let me mention just a few things that the persecutors left out of Paul's Gospel. They left out some critical details. For starters, they left out this that Jesus teaches His disciples not to rebel against Caesar, but He says this, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Left that part out. Left that part out that Jesus Himself teaches that His kingdom is not of this world. He's not a political threat to Caesar's throne. He's teaching the exact opposite. They're leaving that part out. They're leaving that part out. He's also leaving out that the Apostle Paul teaches the churches to submit to human governments and not to rebel against human governments. That part isn't thrown in. Conveniently leaving that part out. And they're charging Paul with being a terrorist and a rebellion leader. And isn't it interesting that later in Paul's life when he writes back to this same group of people in Thessalonica, we find him teaching the exact opposite. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. His commandment to this church, aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. The Word of God. 
They're saying he's an antagonist, he's a terrorist, he's staring everybody else up. But look at what Paul says. Take Paul in his own words. He says, no, live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly towards the outsiders. They're leaving that part out. Paul's a revolutionary. Paul's a terrorist. Paul's you know, involved with political coups. Okay? Leaving this part out. And the irony in this passage is the thing that they accuse Paul of, they're actually the ones guilty of twice. Think about the irony of that. They look at Paul and the missionaries and say, they're the terrorists. They're the agitators. They're the antagonistic ones. And then look at verse 5. They're the ones that set the city in an uproar. In verse 5. Look at verse 13. Later they travel to Berea and they continue their persecution in Berea. And look at what it says. They're the ones, in verse 13, they stirred up and agitated the crowds. So isn't that ironic? That the very thing that they're guilty of doing, they're charging the Apostle Paul and the missionaries of being guilty of doing. And so, one of the things that we learn from this passage Political antagonism, revolution, mindset, social upheaval, that's what lost people do. That's what lost people do. That's not what Christians do. Let me say that again. Political antagonism, social upheaval, revolution, these are the things that lost people do. These are not the things that Christians do. The Word of God commands us to be model citizens. And it is false teaching to think that being a citizen of heaven makes you abandon your citizenship on earth. It doesn't. Jesus teaches us to be model citizens. And Paul is. And you get that, right? They're lying about Him. They're misrepresenting Him. And one of the things that we can learn is we can learn to, to expect the same thing. That, that we can learn to expect that this glorious Gospel that we carry, we can expect that it will be distorted and misrepresented to this world as a message of bigotry and as a message of hate. They will lie about us. This has always been strategy. We will be misrepresented even if our motives are completely pure. They were lied about. This is wicked charges. And the authorities respond with a wicked judicial sentence. In verse 9, they take money from Jason. And, and they're, they're, securing, they're, they're getting financial security, um, taking money from Jason, and that money is a guarantee that Jason is going to ensure to it that these missionaries skip town. Okay? It's a judicial sentence. You're going to give us money. They're going to leave. If they don't, worse consequences await. Judicial sentence and a threat. And Paul reflects on this event later, later in life, whether it's a few months or a few years. He looks back on this event of being cast out of Thessalonica and he tells us that this was a satanic work. And I want you to see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes back to this same church in verse 17 and he says this, 
He says, since we were torn away from you, torn away from you for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So that whole thing that we just unpacked, those charges that were lies, that judicial sentence that was wicked, Paul says that was a satanic hindrance to his apostolic ministry. Satan is behind the antagonism. And what we find that Satan is energizing these Jews with such hate that our passage finishes in verse 13 through verse 15 with them traveling 50 miles away to the next city to continue their persecution of the Apostle Paul. This hatred, this resistance to the Gospel, it's being energized by Satan himself. Satanic opposition to the Gospel. Alright, verse 10, they're making a transition. Satan's opposed the Gospel. Atmosphere has been created where this mission team had to leave Thessalonica and they land in the next city in Macedonia. And we're told that city is named Berea. And what they do when they get there is Paul again engages with his custom. He enters into the synagogue and he begins a series of Jewish evangelism. He begins to evangelize these Jews. And one of the things that Luke is doing for us in this passage is he's giving us a contrast. Okay? And on a very simple level, okay, it's a contrast that says, don't be like this, be like this. Okay? And the contrast is between the Jews in Thessalonica and he contrasts them with the Jews in Berea. In fact, he explicitly lays it out this way in verse 11. The Jew, now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. We have a contrast here. Okay? These Bereans are going to serve as a model for us. They're a model for us to imitate. And in fact, probably most of you here, at some point in your Christian life, and some of you, I know you've heard this hundreds of times, of an encouragement to be a Berean. Okay? That you would be a Berean. That you would be like what is laid out in this text. That you would become a Berean. That you would be a Berean. So we're going to unpack this together. Because the Gospel meets a very different response in Berea. And in verse 11, we're told that the thing that distinguishes these Jews is that they were more noble. The Bible says they had noble character. Okay? And what verse 11 does is it, it basically gives us a definition of what nobility is according to the God, God's Word. What is nobility according to Scripture? And then verse 11 would be basically the verbatim definition. And he gives us a twofold glimpse into nobility. And so Paul goes in, same strategy, same book, same appeal to Scripture. And we're told that these Bereans first, they eagerly received the Word. They eagerly received the Word. That means when he went in and he began to bounce back and forth 
between these Old Testament prophecies and this fulfillment in Jesus. You heard Ryan say this a few times. They're not sitting in the synagogue that day, lean back, you know, just kind of musing academically over what he's saying. They're eager to hear. They're eagerly receiving God's Word. They're leaned They're leaned forward. They're hanging off the words that Paul is saying. They're enthusiastically hearing God's Word. They're not bored. They're fully engaged. Okay, Fully engaged. Eager to hear God's Word. That's one of the things it means to be noble. That's one of the things that it means to be noble is that you would be a disciple that's easy to encourage. Easy to encourage with God's Word. Now, I thank God. I look around this room, and I can think of many, many of you that in my mind, you would fit exactly in this category. You are easy to encourage with God's Word. Okay, And probably more than anything else, Anybody else over the years, I have, I'm going to single out one brother in the church, and I'm going to give you kind of my background of I know many times, many times, that I have preached what I would call subpar sermons, okay? Um, and, you, and you might be saying, you better be right. You know, many times I can think of some subpar sermons that you preached. And so, I'm just throwing that out there. I can think of many times that that has happened at Grace Community Church. But this one brother, he's the easiest brother to encourage with the Bible that I know. Alan Daniel, it doesn't matter how uh, you know unclear I thought the sermon was. Uh, it doesn't matter if I felt like the exhortation landed in a certain way. I mean, it's almost like as long as I got one Bible verse in, he's coming, you know, his heart exploding with joy that God revealed Himself to him through his word. And when I think about that, brother, this is what I think. He's eager to hear God's word. He's so easy to encourage with God's word. Now, he's not alone at Grace Community Church. Many of you at Grace Community Church would fit into that category. And what we want to labor to be is a church full of people like that. That we are so easy to encourage with God's Word. It doesn't take you know, some haymaker John Piper sermon to get you excited about the things of Jesus that with simplicity, week after week, we open the Bible, teach what it says, and you're just encouraged. The Bible calls that nobility. That's what it means to be a noble man or woman of God. Easy to encourage with God's Word. Easy to be exhorted from God's Word. Be a Berean. And I'm convinced that the reason why some people are so easily encouraged has nothing to do with their personality. Okay? I'm not, I'm, I'm not convinced of that at all, that these really bubbly people are so easy to encourage, and these really introverted people, not so easy to encourage. I want to encourage you to toss that stuff out. Because God's Word gives us a grid for why they're so easy to encourage, and that's because they come in this place ready to hear from God. Eager to hear God's Word. And so this text gives us some exhortation of the heart and the mindset that we bring into Sunday mornings, ready to hear 
God speak. Excited to hear God speak. And secondly, we're told that these Bereans examined the Scriptures. Examined the Scriptures. And I want you to think about how beautiful those two things go together. Okay? So when we talk about someone easy to encourage, we're not talking about just someone who floats around in flattery that receives everything that you say without giving it any thought. We're not talking about someone who's indoctrinated of everything you say, they, they think it's awesome. Look how beautiful those two things are, side by side. So easy to encourage. And yet, at the same time, checking everything you say by the Word of God. Examining the Scriptures side by side with this apostolic Gospel. Checking the Scriptures to see if it lines up. All of us can have many different convictions okay, that we bring as presuppositions to the Bible. And when we say that they're examining the Scriptures in light of what Paul says, the Scriptures are putting forward the Bereans as an example to us to examine the Scriptures in an impartial way. They're not smuggling in all that bias of all the things that they've ever heard the rabbis say. They're not bringing that bias in. They're giving the Scriptures an impartial reading. And, and you see, one of the things, one of the marks of nobility is this, that no matter how long you have been taught whatever doctrine or whatever practice, no matter how long you've been taught that, an impartial reading of the Word of God that disagrees with that doctrine or practice, nobility bows to the book. No matter how strongly grandpa held to those things or those in your family have held to those things, no matter how long you may have heard certain doctrines, a word from God trumps man. And we see that here. Okay? What is nobility? It looks like you being willing to walk away from even lifelong convictions because God showed you something different in His Word. And the Bible calls that nobility. Nobility. And the final thing I want to mention in this text, this exhortation about us being Bereans, is I want to point out that they engaged in this searching of Scripture. The text says... Daily. They engaged in this searching of Scripture daily. Examining the Scriptures daily. Verse 11. And I want you to think about this. Okay? We're going to talk about your daily relationship with God through His Word. And we're going to talk about why that should be the case for every person in the room. And before we land there, I do want to just sketch out that there are many different things that we could say about daily seeking God in His Word. Okay? Many things. We could go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, where Jesus tells every human being that they should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we could take that text and we could talk about how Jesus compares physical food with spiritual food, and we could draw comparisons with you eat physical food daily, Jesus is saying that you need, 
spiritual food daily, and we could walk into all the implications of that, that if you eat God's Word like you eat food, this is how you're made strong as a Christian. This is how you're nourished as a Christian. And we could talk about the backside of that, that if you neglect God's Word, then it leads to malnourishment. It leads us the opposite of strength. It leads us weak. This is what God uses to make us strong. We could talk about our daily relationship with God's Word in those categories of nourishment and strength. We could also talk about God's Word every day uh, from Romans 15, verse 4. We have this beautiful phrase. It says, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And we could get into a beautiful conversation of the way that God wants to encourage us every single day is through the Bible. Through the Scriptures. And we can walk into all the implications of that. That if we're downcast, and if we're discouraged, then God has encouragement through us through the Scriptures. And if we're depressed and we feel hopeless, that one of the means that God has given us to turn our eyes to the heavens, to be reminded of where our our help comes from is through our daily relationship with God through His Word. So we could come about this from, from many different ways that neglecting the Scriptures will leave Christians weak and malnourished. That neglecting the Scriptures will leave Christians discouraged and cold towards Christ. But the thing that I want to point out from this text is I want to mention that another thing that's at stake when we come to the Bible daily, that relationship with God through the Scriptures is a mark of humility before God. It's, it's, there's a direct correlation between your humility before God and your continuously and consistently seeking God in His Word. And what we've seen in this passage is we've seen two different examples of two groups of people that live their life under the authority of God's Word. And I want to challenge us to remind ourselves that we believe everything that this book says. And one of the things that this book says, this is Jeremiah 10.23, if you want to jot this down, it says this, the way of man is not in man. I'll say that again. The way of man is not in man. And so if we believe this book and we say that we do, one of the things that we believe about ourselves is we do not know how to live. We do not know which way to go. The way of man is not in man. These are all the Scriptures about God's Word being a light given to us. A gracious light given to us. And so I want you to think about that. There's all kinds of things that are connected to daily coming to God's Word. And as we do that day by day, we are expressing humility before God. We're coming before God like a little child. This is how Solomon came before God. He said, I'm like a little child. I don't know how to come out. I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to go out. Teach me, Lord. Make me wise. That's what the Scriptures do for us. 
every single day. And the backside of this is also true. A refusal to come to God's Word, even on a daily basis, is not a mark of humility. It's actually a mark of pride. And we need to think through that, that we're in that decision every single day. Will I live today by the authority of God, or will I live today by the authority of man? Will I live today by the Word of God, or will I live today by bread alone? We have to make this decision every single day, day by day by day. Jesus intends to rule us through His Word. And I want to leave you with an encouraging uh, verse. Turn to Proverbs 8. And I want to encourage you to think about your daily times of seeking God in His Word like this. This disposition that we're going to read about. Proverbs 8. We're going to read verse 34. This is wisdom speaking. He says, Blessed is the one who listens to Me, watching daily at My gates, waiting at My doors. So that's our encouragement that I want to leave us with. Grace Community Church, those marks of nobility that we would be easy to encourage with God's Word. That we would be so ready to bow to whatever it says, no strings attached, nobility. And that we would express our dependence and our humility before God, waiting daily at His gates, asking to be instructed in his ways. And our prayer is that the Lord would raise us up more and more and more as Bereans. As Bereans. Those who live under the authority of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bless Your name, Lord. And we ask, God, that You would make our time today fruitful, Lord. That You would make it fruitful, Lord. God, we want to claim and stand upon Your promises that You say that all Scripture, not only is it breathed out by You, but You say it's profitable. And we ask, God, that You would cause us to inherit that promise from You. That week by week, we would gather around Your Word and that You would change us, that You would speak to us, that You would encourage us, that You would fill up this time that we give attention to Your Word with spiritual edification and zeal and conviction and whatever we need, Lord. We ask for that even today in the name of Jesus. Amen.